welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast. And now your host, Sonia Esther Sultani. Welcome to the Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast, a podcast for people in the jewelry industry that want to learn more and for people who love jewelry and want to expand their knowledge. Here we talk about everything that has to do with antique and vintage jewelry. I'm your host, Sonia Esther Sultani, the editor-in-chief of Rappaport. I edit a monthly magazine that covers everything from mining to retail. I also edit an online publication called Jewelry Connoisseur, like this podcast, and I curate an Instagram account, Rappaport Jewelry Pro, on which we share information about gemstones, antique jewelry, and contemporary design. I love jewelry, I love to learn more, and I love to have exciting guests. Today, my guest is Beth Bernstein, the author of The Modern Guide to Antique Jewelry that's just been released by ACC Art Book. Beth is a collector, a jewelry journalist with years of experience, and she will tell us what to look for when you start an antique jewelry collection, some of the things she's learned in the process of researching this book, and what is in her dream jewelry box. Hi, Beth. I'm very happy to have you on this podcast today. How are you? I'm fine, and I'm so happy to be here, Sonia. It's a pleasure to be here and be asked by you to do this. I'm very excited. I'm excited to have you because I actually read your modern guide to antique jewelry from cover to cover. I thought I would just dip in, dip out. I would go in one chapter. But actually, once I started, I was so infused by it. The period you cover is from collecting Georgian jewelry to Art Deco. You also explain what's antique jewelry. And what I found really interesting is on top of your personal insights, because you've been a collector for years, is you interviewed a lot of established dealers in America and abroad who give their inputs, their insights, their opinions on different periods, the size and what to collect. So how did this book start and why did you feel it was a necessary addition to the book library of jewelry lovers? Well, I don't know if you know this, but I had written three books before this. One was a memoir and then two were jewelry books. One was about modern jewelries, emerging modern jewelry designers. And next one was called If These Jewels Could Talk. And it was about celebrity jewelry and jewelry and film. I'm a film geek as well as a jewelry enthusiast. So that book I had wanted to write for 20 something years. But it's very interesting. I have a library full of books, about 400 jewelry books. I have so many antique jewelry books and I thought what am I going to add to this like I've written so many articles about antique jewelry I thought how am I going to add to this amazing library that's out there on antique jewelry and all of a sudden there was this aha moment I was asked to give tours through the U.S. antique shows in Miami in New York to seven centuries of jewelry from Georgian to I would say the 70s basically I picked the dealers I thought were most trustworthy and And they had consumers who wanted to buy jewelry join up for these tours. I would bring them to the dealers. The dealers and I would discuss the jewelry. We'd show the jewelry. Some dealers were a little bit more shy. And so I would jump in and I would, you know, get behind the booth. Because there were so many people who wanted to know so many things. So the Q&As went just longer than even the tour. And that's when the aha moment came. I was going to these dealers that I had known for so many years. And some I knew for 20 years. Some I met 
10 years ago, but they're all really trustworthy. They all have museum quality jewels. I only picked those to be on the tours and I thought, that's how I'm going to write this book. I'm going to interview people that are out there that have a tremendous amount of knowledge that I trust to buy from, that I would recommend to buy from. And there'll be different perspectives in the book and it will be my voice. It won't only be my voice. And then it could also turn into a sort of travelogue where you have different dealers and shops from different parts of the world. So that's how it all started. I think that's what makes it so interesting. As you said, travelogue, it feels like really a guidebook to the world of jewelry, taking you from London and Paris and obviously places in America and well-known dealers. What were the questions these attendees of the tools asked you? Were there like recurring questions that you felt was on people's mind? Okay, so on the tours, there were designers who wanted to know just a little bit more about the time periods because they were inspired by those time periods. So modern designers came on the tours, like I would see designers I knew on the tours. And then there were the collectors, the starter collectors. There were more in-depth, um, more consummate collectors. And there were also dealers on the tours, other dealers on the tours. So there was such a range of questions starting out, like how do I tell if a shank has been changed? from a Georgian ring and when was it changed to how do I start my collection? What is the best art deco piece you've ever seen on the market? So, I mean, the questions just ranged. A lot of times after the tours, they would go back to those dealers and they would buy from those dealers. So that was really very interesting. And sometimes they'd ask me to go back with them and help them choose things, which is also really nice to do. There's a lot of advice in this book. What would be a few of the top tips you would give to someone who's beginning the collection of antique jewelry that is listening to this podcast and just has a taste for antique jewelry and maybe also just doesn't exactly know what's antique jewelry? Well, first I would teach them what antique jewelry versus vintage jewelry was, which is antique jewelry is 100 years older or more, which is why we stopped at the early 1920s because that's 100 years. And vintage jewelry is from really like the 1930s to the 1970s. So they really split up. And then I would teach them a little bit about each period and what to look for. I would say, do some research on each period and think about what you want to wear, what your lifestyle is like, because I personally love Georgian rings, but they sit in my safety deposit box because I think, oh my God, I can't wash my hands with them. And if I put them down, I'm going to lose them. I'm not going to remember to put them back on. So while I love them and I have collected them over time, I realized that those are the ones that I wear the least. And you should never buy jewelry that you're not going to wear. I realized that over time, that jewelry is not meant to sit in the safe. It's meant to be worn. Unless you're a historical collector and you're only collecting for history and you're just collecting it as an art form. And I think one of the beginning chapters is how to define your style. And you know, there's different kinds of collectors, which are collectors are just for art's sake. You can have some pieces that you don't wear as often because they're delicate and they're 200 years old. But I think, especially starting out, buy jewelry you're going to wear. Ask a lot of questions when you go to dealers. Talk to people about the dealer people that are antique collectors. Talk to your antique collector friends and ask them who they go to so you get some trustworthy dealers. And always make sure, this is a thing that I've learned, always make sure that the dealer writes everything down on the receipt that they've told you. So if anything, you find out 
that somehow it wasn't right, you can always return it. And also realize that eventually you are going to make a mistake here and there. Mistakes happen. Even the biggest dealers have talked to me about how they've made mistakes. I worked for a dealer, which is on the weekends, just to learn more about antique jewelry when I was collecting. And she said, if you don't make mistakes, you'll never be a really good collector or a really good dealer. So there are mistakes that are made. And also you might not know your style at the beginning. At the beginning, I collected a little bit later Victorian jewelry, like that I thought was my style. And eventually I grew into more Georgian, except for the earrings, I felt they were a little heavy. And then I also love Art Deco, kind of like a mix of things. But you can have a style that crosses the board and you don't have to be set in one style. So those are some of the advice I'd give. You mentioned the dealer you started with. I would like to tell our listeners a really nice story you tell in the book that you had a full-time job five days a week and you work two days a week extra so you work really all around to learn about jewelry and antique jewelry at these dealers. And she was lending you books that you were taking back home and studying. So that really shows the passion and the enthusiasm. And can you tell us a bit more about your own journey into antique jewelry? Because before writing about it, writing books, you, you were a collector and you also sold antique jewelry. I love diamonds, but I really love the quality of antique diamonds, the um, old mine cuts and the old European cuts and the rose cuts. There was some character and personality to them that just attracted me so much. So I think early on, I was very attracted to the subtle pieces that you could wear by candlelight. So I think I started collecting. And I also, one of my favorite stones, I feel is completely magical, and it's moonstone. The moonstone was seen in a lot of Victorian jewelry. And as I said, that's what I started to collect. So I think my first real piece of antique jewelry was a moonstone like swag necklace. I wore that a lot. So when I met the dealer that I was going to be working for, I looked in her case and it was like a museum and I was just like overwhelmed and I picked a ring and she said you know that my favorite ring in the case and she gave me a good price at the time for the ring and I said this is going to take me a very long time to pay off and she said well I have an idea why don't you come work for me on weekends and you know that can help you pay it off and you can take as much time as you need and I said how come and she said because everything you've looked at so far in the case is my best jewelry and I don't know maybe I had an instant for it. Before I was a jewelry writer and a jewelry journalist, I was a fashion editor and a fashion stylist for magazines. I always loved jewelry the best to style with. So I was working five days a week doing freelance writing, writing for one magazine, doing freelance writing for other magazines, doing still some wardrobe styling on the side. And I then took the job. I said, will you teach me everything you know? Because I knew she was really an expert. That really excited me. And she said, yes, if you come work for me and opening her safe was like opening a museum and like putting things out I had so much fun and she took me to the Miami show and she took me to other shows where I met the other dealers so dealers I know today for 25 years I met through her and she would introduce me and then she would bring things back and I'm like oh I want that and she's like you can't buy my best things I just bought I was like oh yeah that's beautiful I want that can I pay that off and then I found dealers on my own I would always make sure she approved and she always would tell me about things and you know that's really where I learned it and that's when I also started dealing in jewelry was after meeting all these dealers I would go from actual dealers that were in New York and also outside of New York I would call on them and on weekends I would also run around from dealer to New York store
stores, selling the antique jewelry to the stores. And then all of a sudden I had private clients and I would sell to private clients and find things for private clients. So I did that for a long time and I've been collecting for 25 years. The Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast will be back after this break. The Jewelry Connoisseur Podcast is brought to you by Rappaport Jewelry Auctions. Rappaport Jewelry Auctions offer centralized monthly auction markets that provide sellers with liquidity for their jewelry at fair market value prices and give buyers an opportunity to purchase estate jewelry at competitive market prices. Rappaport's auctions consist of unique estate, vintage, and signed jewelry, expertly curated and incredibly priced. With auctions held each month, there are always excellent buying and selling opportunities. Visit us at jewelryauctions.rappaport.com and register to participate in our upcoming auctions. And you feel the passion in this book, in your garden. What I wanted to ask you is actually, if you speak to his dealers for so many years, you know that. Is there anything that surprised you when you were doing the interviews for the guys? Did you learn something that you actually had never thought of or you thought of it differently after speaking to one of your interviewees? I think that I learned more. It's funny because I never thought Art Nouveau was the most wearable of all the different periods of jewelry. I thought it was really an art form. It was because it was the rebellion against the Industrial Revolution and the Victorian mass-produced jewelry. But after talking to Ben Macklow from Macklow Gallery, um, Peter, a Schaefer from Alavivusi, you know, they showed me pieces that I felt, oh yes, well these are definitely wearable. So it's just what you choose. Like, of course, you can pick the dragonfly brooch that's wearable, but there were the more amazing pieces I felt were just more artistic and that you would have for artistic purposes. And also what I learned was in Art Nouveau, of course, there's Lalique and Felice and Fouquet, all these wonderful jewelry designers of the time. But there were so many unsigned pieces that were made by the same houses that unsigned Art Nouveau jewelry and Art Deco jewelry was also made by the same houses as like Cartier and Chaumet and that the unsigned pieces while they don't appreciate as much of time and they're not as expensive right now you can get wonderful pieces that aren't signed so I learned a lot more about and mostly about the Art Nouveau period I learned more about. That's such an interesting point you just made about the workshops. It's something that we've discussed with some of our guests on this podcast, that the more you know about who were the workshop of special houses, the more you're able to find really interesting jewels that are not signed, but they have the maker's mark of the workshop. And then you get a quality that's exceptional, but it just doesn't have the same name, but it's still the quality of the materials and the craftsmanship is extraordinary. So I think that's something, the more you become a connoisseur, I guess, the more you're able to access these pieces. There's one story I have about a very big dealer. He had a shop actually on 47th Street and a lot of the dealers that had uh, storefront shops on 47th Street, which is our jewelry district in New York, were all the setters and casters and polishers. But one of the dealers there, I had bought an Art Deco bracelet from him, a diamond Art Deco bracelet with all different cuts of diamonds. And it was very Cartier looking to me. And he said, you know, with the maker's marks, I think it might have been made in the 
same house as Cartier. At the time, it was expensive for me, but it was a really wonderful piece. And once again, I did my layaway in Milan and I paid it off. But I would say in around five or six years later, he came back to me and he said, I'd like to buy that bracelet back if you still have it and I'll pay you four times what you paid for it. Because I knew what was happening was there was less and less on the market. And this was a really beautiful bracelet. And I said, I know that if you're going to pay me four times what it's worth, it's probably 10 times what it's worth. So no. And I love it. He said, smart move. (laughs) So that was a good story. But a lot of the times, a lot of the dealers will say, if you ever want to sell my pieces back, come to me first, because they love the pieces they have and they love the pieces that they sell. Yes, usually I know a lot of them tell you they find it hard to part with a piece and usually it's the piece they like the most that goes the first. It's always a little bit emotional, even if they know they for the money, but still they get attached to these beautiful pieces. And best because you know fashion so well, you write for different publications. One of them is obviously Rappaport magazine. How do you see this modern collector to deal with antique jewelry? Is it a new audience? Are they looking for something different? How do you define this consumer that are going to dealers to look for these antique pieces? I think the antique market really exploded because of social media and Instagram. I was never privy to that. Even going to all the shows like the Miami show, which is a huge show, I still have never seen so much jewelry as on Instagram and social media. And there is a whole group of antique collectors that, you know, have look at each other's feeds and are selling and are buying and collecting. And I think that once that happened and once people started to learn more about antique jewelry the field just opened up so i think the collector can be anywhere i think millennials are collecting for sustainability because they know that antique jewelry has an inherent sustainability um we don't know really what happened back then what they did back then but we do know that it has been passed down and passed down for generations so i think that they collect for that and they also buy their engagement rings sometimes antique engagement rings for that reason. And then the other collectors, you know, the collectors from 30s to their 60s, they're collecting because there is a magic and a history. And what's so interesting about certain antique jewelry, there's so much meaning to it, especially during the latter Georgian era and the Victorian era. There was a lot of meaning to the jewelry much of which had to do with at those in those days you couldn't speak your feelings so if somebody wanted to express their feelings they gave it as a piece of jewelry in a piece of jewelry there was the language of flowers which came into being during the victorian era where all types of different flowers had certain meanings and many of them had meanings of love friendship different kinds of love and friendship um return to happiness like beautiful meanings some not so beautiful meanings but we you know they use the ones with the meanings that the giver would speak to the receiver there was acoustic jewelry which you know the first gemstone spelled out a word in each piece of jewelry so if you had a regard ring let's say it was ruby emerald garnet 
amethyst, diamonds. So regard, dear, dearest, amour. And then during more of the Art Nouveau period, you had the French words with different types of flowers. So there was a lot of meaning behind that you can relate to today. There were so many different types of hearts that had so many different meanings. So if you had a heart with a bow on top, it means two hearts. If you had two hearts with a bow on top, it was like two hearts tied together as one. Or if you had a heart with a crown on top, it was love triumphant. You know, there's all different types of heart. And of course, the snake became very popular. The snake always had meaning throughout history from antiquity throughout history and not always wonderful meaning but snakes in Victorian times started meaning enduring love because Prince Albert gave Victoria a snake ring as her engagement ring with her birthstone in it which was an emerald so it became to have the meaning of enduring love and that history really attracts collectors because a lot of the modern designers are using motifs from the past but it's just that beauty and that patina I don't know there's just something like I said, magical about Antichuli, and I think it's really attracted a much wider audience than ever before. But with that said, you also need to be careful because there's a lot of repos on the market today. Yeah, absolutely. I hope after this podcast, people will have even more interest in antique jewelry. As I said, I would really recommend everyone as a beginner's guide, or even if you want to learn a bit more, to read your modern guide to antique jewelry. That's just been published at ACC Art Books. And Beth, before we close this really interesting conversation, I would like you to tell me what is in your dream jewelry box? I know your real jewelry box is beautiful and already has really extraordinary pieces in the safe or the ones that you wear. But what is in a dream jewelry box of antique collectors such as yourself? Okay, so in my dream jewelry box would be a piece from Lalique, a beautiful Lalique piece, now that I so know more about Art Nouveau. Also a piece from Felice because I'm hopeful, romantic, and a lot of Felice's pieces, although they were from the Art Nouveau period, had a lot to do with love. And, you know, I find that the romance of that lovely. And, of course, I have a Rivier, and it's a paste Rivier that looks like pink topaz, and it's beautiful, but what I would really love would be a diamond Rivier necklace in my dream jewelry box and maybe a pair of day to night earrings that I could wear from the Georgian period that would also be in my dream jewelry box. I like it and they wouldn't be too heavy. Yeah the Georgian can be a little bit heavy as they stopped using silver top gold and just started using the gold they started getting lighter so i think you know i would go to the open back less heavy and also maybe a entrebant brooch because a few of my friends who absolutely love brooches and will wear brooches everywhere and in all different ways so i don't have diamond entrebant brooch which i would definitely want in my dream collection absolutely gorgeous I love it <laughs> Beth thank you so much for joining us on this podcast it was really a pleasure and I'm happy that we got the chance to speak about your new book and what it means to collect antique jewelry thank you so much this was wonderful and I hope I was able to give the listeners some good information I, I really appreciate you having me thank you so much Thanks for having joined us on this latest episode of the Jewelry Connoisseur podcast. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, and YouTube. If you like this podcast, give us your feedback and make sure that you subscribe so you won't miss any single episode. You also can find information on estate and antique jewelry on jewelryconnoisseur.net. 